Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 16th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to get right into our presentation of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, part 16. It will be subtitled, Christian Assembly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul of Tarsus had been addressing Christian deportment within the assemblies of the body of Christ. From there, in chapters 12 and 13, he discussed the various gifts which each member of the body of Christ receives from God. While Paul does not <clears throat> excuse me, speak explicitly of fleshly gifts, he does mention that various members of the body are granted certain abilities or are given greater wealth and therefore have the ability to share in carnal things. And he lists among the noble things which a Christian may do which are generally perceived by men as being fleshly or worldly, the distribution of one's carnal gifts, one's wealth, being able to feed your brother. Therefore, it should be perceived that those with abilities or those who have wealth, and when I speak of those who, with abilities, it, it, it could be farming, carpentry, welding, whatever gift or talent you have. Those with such abilities are also the recipients of spiritual gifts, as we saw in the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Yahweh God put it in the hearts of certain men to be able to create objects of beauty out of gold, silver, linen, whatever materials they were given. Those are also gifts from God. And they also should use those gifts, men who have them, or women, to edify the assembly of God in the same manner as those who interpret prophecy or who speak in tongues or have any of the other spiritual gifts. All of this is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because in the very same place where Paul had written that if I have the gift of interpretation of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if perhaps I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am not. The same Paul also wrote that if perhaps I employ all my possessions in feeding others, and if I would hand over my body in order that I may boast, but if I do not have love, I am do nothing. Making this exposition of the gifts within a Christian assembly in conjunction with an appeal for the need of Christian love among the members of the body of Christ, it is evident that Paul's underlying purpose was to correct those Corinthians whom he had admonished in chapter 11 
who had been bringing food and drink to their Christian gatherings and eating, while some less fortunate Christians were going hungry. While Paul had asked them directly in chapter 11 whether they had houses in which to eat and to drink, telling them that they should eat their meals at home. On the other hand, in chapter 13, he made an example of those things a noble Christian may do for the assembly that would be of benefit to him later. And one of those things was to employ one's wealth in the nourishment of the poorer members of the assembly. Therefore, it should be manifest that some members of the body are blessed with what we consider to be surely spiritual gifts. And they are obliged to share those things with their brethren for the edification of the body of Christ. However, those members of the body who are blessed with what men may perceive to be carnal gifts, they too are obligated to share their gifts with their brethren for the edification of the body of Christ. Out of love, and certainly not for personal aggrandizement, should Christians seek to use whatever gifts it is that God has bestowed upon them for the edification of the body of Christ. And if for whatever reason, one cannot share those gifts, he should leave what he does, does have at home rather than flaunt it before his fellow Christians. As Paul also said, love does not vaunt itself or become inflated or seek things for itself. After explaining that all of the gifts granted by men in this life are temporal. Even the most precious gifts of the Spirit, which would one day in the future be laid idle. Paul informs us that love endures. It must be kept in mind that at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul had already explained that the members of the body of Christ, whom he considers... Israel, according to the flesh, were obligated to distinguish themselves from those who are unworthy of the body. From this, the Christian may perceive that it is through love for God and kindred that one stores up treasure in heaven. Here in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 14, Paul continues his admonishment concerning love and his discourse concerning Christian deportment, which he had begun in chapter 12. And actually in chapter 8, when he first started talking about the relationship between the Christian and the pagan world. Pursue that love. Admire the spiritual things and still more, that you may interpret prophecy. As we have explained over the past several presentations of this epistle, the Greek word translated as to interpret prophecy here may also be interpreted so as to mean merely to prophecy in the sense of 
one who was able to reveal to others things which are not generally known. The examples of this attribute in Christ are in the Gospel of John, where he interacts with Nathanael in John chapter 1, from verse 47, and then again with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, from verse 16. We're going to read those few short snippets so that we understand this, that this one shade of meaning of the word prophet or prophecy from John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathanael, this is from the King James Version, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? From where do you know me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Christ was able to tell, some, tell Nathanael something that he saw him doing that he couldn't have known from where he was at the time. And Nathanael was astonished by that and realized that this was the Christ that he was talking to. From John chapter 4, Christ speaking to the woman at the well, Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, you have spoken well. I had no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband. In that thou hast spoken truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, because he revealed something to her that he couldn't have known, never having met her and told her about her life. This ability to reveal things which could otherwise not be known except through the Holy Spirit must be what Yahweh had promised in Joel chapter 2, which Peter had quoted in Acts in connection with the first Christian Pentecost. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, meaning all of the flesh of the men and women who have the children of God, who have the Spirit of God. That's what's meant very often in the words of the prophets, where it re references all flesh. Dogs and birds and cats are not going to begin to prophesy by the Spirit of God. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. All the pronouns connect these people to the children of Israel. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For he, speaking in a language, speaks not to men, but to Yahweh. Indeed, no one hears, but he speaks 
mysteries in the spirit. The King James Version takes the Greek word, glossa, which is a tongue. It's literally the tongue, the, the part of your body that's in your mouth that gets us in trouble all the time. It's literally a tongue, but the same word was also used to describe a language. And the King James adds the word unknown in front of it, even though the word unknown does not appear in Greek. So the King James creates a lie with a little word in italics, right? One may isolate this verse, 1 Corinthians 14.2. One may isolate this verse and imagine that Paul is talking about otherworldly languages, which are not comprehensible to man. So the King James, they imagine that. They stuck that word unknown in there. It seems that way. But that is simply not the case. And it is not fair to isolate any verse of Scripture in such a manner, removing it from its context. Rather, in verse 10 of this chapter, Paul clarifies his meaning where he says that there are many sorts of languages in the society. There are many sorts of languages in the world, right here in this chapter in verse 10. This must be taken in context. So here Paul is talking about the same sorts of languages he's talking about in verse 10. He's talking about worldly languages. Now, there may be contention over this interpretation because Paul mentioned earlier in chapter 13, at the beginning of that chapter, the tongues of men and angels. But there, in chapter 13, Paul is only making a hypothetical example. He is not stating a definite fact. He's not saying that he spoke in the tongue of men and angels. He's saying, even if I spoke in the tongues of men and angels. It's a hypothetical example. It has nothing to do with reality necessarily. Furthermore, Paul is also about to explain that unless the languages which one may speak have people here in the world who can, ex who can understand them, that those languages are useless to man and one is better off keeping such things to himself or herself. Verse 3, but he that interprets prophecies, or he that prophecies in the sense which we have seen with Christ and a woman at the well, or with Christ and Nathaniel, but he that interprets prophecies to men speaks for building and encouragement and exhortation. Now, this can, of course, refer to one who interprets the Old Testament prophets or to one who has the ability by the Spirit to reveal hidden things which are not generally known. It may very well be that Paul is using the term in both senses. However, it is the second sense that is meant in the later portion of this chapter, where, after mentioning the utility of speaking in tongues, Paul says in verse 24, 
and we'll, we will get to it again tonight. But if perhaps all might interpret prophecy, and some unbeliever or uninstructed may enter, he has brought convincing proof by all, meaning that there are people in the assembly who can reveal to him the secrets of his heart. He is examined by all. The secrets of his heart become evident. That could be embarrassing. And thus, falling upon his face, he will worship Yahweh, announcing that truly Yahweh is among you. This description by Paul fully describes the reaction of the Samaritan woman at the well when Christ said to her, Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now is not thy husband. Which probably means that the woman, the man she was with at that time, they had no conjugal relationship. After five husbands, they didn't have the Viagra then. He was probably getting old. That's my guess. That's my conjecture. She was getting aged and lived with another man who she hadn't had a relationship with in a husband-wife manner. He, speaking in a language, builds himself, but he, interpreting prophecy, builds the assembly. As Paul says below in verse 5, speaking in a language is pretty much useless to everyone except the speaker unless others nearby understand what is being spoken. Therefore, prophecy, or the interpretation of prophecy, is certainly the greater gift of the two. We must keep in mind that Paul is still answering questions that the assembly in Corinth had asked of him in a letter, which is evident at the opening of chapter 7 of this epistle. And Paul is still answering their questions. And therefore, the assembly must have inquired of Paul as to the value and use of these gifts of the Spirit, as well as the other things which he has discussed here, and which are coming in chapter 15. Now I wish you all to speak languages, but still more that you should interpret prophecy that may have been written, that you may interpret prophecy. Indeed, greater is he interpreting prophecies than he speaking languages unless publicly he would explain what was said, meaning the speaker of tongues, in order that the assembly would receive building, edification. There was a phrase here in verse 5. We're going to get a little technical. The phrase is ectos I may. I, E-I, may, M-A, means if not in Greek. For which the King James Version has only the word except for those three Greek words. The Greek word ectos literally means outside, beyond, or exterior, like a bug has an ectoderm, an outside shell, right? But as we often do in English, so also in Greek, was the word ectos used in certain contexts 
to say except. Just like in English, we would say something like, outside of my paycheck, I have no money, meaning that the only money I have right now is in my paycheck, right? Or outside of the rent, all of the bills are paid, meaning that the rent is still left to be paid. However, this is an idiom, and it is not the primary use of the word. Ectos means without or outside, but it's not primarily used to say except. Paul did clearly use the word ectos to mean except in the sense of being outside of something without the accompanying phrase here, I may, in 1 Corinthians 15:27, where ectos in that context by itself does mean except. Now the phrase I may, according to Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon and others, is a conditional phrase which by itself means unless or except. It technically means if not. Therefore, here in this verse, one phrase or the other, either ectos or I may, is ignored by the King James Version translation and all of the other major translations. Wherein other places Paul had often used either ectos or I may to say except or unless, one cannot merely take it for granted that Paul is being redundant in the three places in his surviving epistles where he uses both terms in the same phrase. While it does not bear much significance in this particular passage, it certainly does in places such as 1 Corinthians 15.2 and 1 Timothy 5.19. The other two places where this exact same phrase appears in Paul's writing. It's significant, and we'll speak of this at greater length, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But in 1 Timothy, it is important because it has to do with accusations against an elder, and it, and it basically says that you should not accept accusations against an elder, or against anyone, really, without two or three witnesses, you shall not accept those accusations, ectos I may, without two or three witnesses. And what Paul's saying is, you shall not accept an accusation publicly, ectos meaning outside, openly, publicly, except you have two or three witnesses. You can accept an accusation against anyone, and if there aren't two or three witnesses, you just put it in the back of your mind, leave it on the back burner, because it's, it can't be true. It could very well be slander without two or three witnesses. That's the law. It is not fair to assume that Paul was using these words redundantly when in all three instances in Paul's letters, Interpreting the phrase ectos 
I may, as unless outside or unless publicly makes perfect sense according to the context and also literally represents all of the words of the phrase, ignoring nothing. And we'll discuss this later where it's important in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2. Here, Paul is saying that there, if there is no interpreter, no public interpreter out in the open in the Christian assembly, if there is no interpreter, if there is no one present who may understand a language, then there is no reason for speaking in that language publicly. But if interpreters or people who understand the language are present, then it certainly would be edifying to speak in that language before the assembly. If there are interpreters of a tongue, then speaking in that tongue is every bit as useful to those of the assembly than the interpretation of prophecy. That's what Paul is telling us, or at least that's what he told the Corinthians when he wrote this when he wrote this epistle, probably around fifty five or fifty six AD. I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. Verse 6, and now, brethren, if perhaps I come before you speaking languages, what benefit will I be to you unless to you I would speak either in revelation or in knowledge or in interpretation of prophecy or in teaching? So we see that speaking in a foreign language is nothing by itself. But rather, it is what is said in that language which is truly important. That those who hear can understand it and are edified by one of these other gifts of the Spirit which operate in concert with one speaking in tongues. In other words, speaking in tongues is a gift from God, but even that's useless by itself. If you could speak in an unknown tongue to communicate with people, that is a miracle and a gift from God. But it's given to you so that you can use these other gifts in order to communicate with those people things which are edifying and convincing to convert those people to the gospel of Christ, which Paul calls here teaching or interpretation of prophecy or the revelation of something. From Acts chapter 2, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues just as the Spirit gave them to utter. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Judeans, they're all Judeans, Devout men from every nation under the heaven, meaning every nation of the Greco-Roman oikumene. Then, with the occurrence of this sound, the multitude gathered and was confused, <coughs> because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astonished and wondered, 
saying, Behold, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how do we each hear in our own language with which we were raised? Judeans in Parthia probably spoke Persian, Farsi, Parthi, and Medes and Elamites and, and Cappadocians and people from Pontus and Asia, which is actually Greece, right? It's Western Anatolia, Roman Asia Minor. Then how do we, each here in our own language with which we were raised, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the regions of Libya throughout Cyrene and the Romans who were sojourning, both Judeans and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear they're speaking in our own tongues the magnificent things of Yahweh, as Paul says here in verse 10. These are all languages that were worldly, languages that were known in the world at the time. Ostensibly, when the apostles were speaking in tongues, they were not just babbling. Rather, they were speaking in intelligible languages in the presence of men who already understood those languages. And through them, they were sharing, through the, through the gift of tongues, they were sharing with those men revelations, knowledge, interpretations of prophecy, and teachings. Ostensibly, all from Scripture or from the Holy Spirit in concert with Scripture. Verse 7, Like lifeless things giving a sound, whether flute or lyre, if perhaps they did not give a distinction in their voices or sounds, how will one know that being played on the flute or that being played on the lyre? Indeed then, if perhaps a trumpet would give an uncertain sound, why would one prepare for war? In ancient cities, trumpets were used to call the citizenry to various functions, including war. If the trumpet sounded ambiguously, the people would be confused regarding what to do. This is why Christian identity needs a clear message without any ambiguity so that we know the spiritual war we are fighting. That's a digression, but it's true. Just as also you, unless by means of a language, you would give speech clear to understand. These are very important words coming from the mouth of Paul of Tarsus. Unless by means of language, you would give speech clear to understand. How will one know that being spoken. Indeed, you will be speaking into the air. Here we have a principle set forth by Paul, whereby we should understand that when his letters are read, that his words are to be taken by their plane every day. Greek meanings. Therefore, sperma means seed, as in actual physical descendants. 
Sperma only comes from one place. Ethnos means nation, as in a homogenous group of genetically related people. A father and a forefather are literal genetic male ancestors. Oikos means household, as in the members of a genetic family of people. And Israel, according to the flesh, means actual fleshly genetic descendants of the ancient Israelites, which Paul attests are found both among the Judeans in Romans chapter 9, and also among the Greeks and the Romans in Romans chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If Paul is not giving speech clear to understand, and he didn't mean sperma, forefather, oikos, house, family, he wouldn't have used those words. None of these words can have any special theological meaning outside of the common coin Greek vernacular. Or else, Paul of Tarsus may have been saying one thing, and the people of the assemblies to whom he wrote would have been understanding something quite different from what Paul was saying. The denominational churches are therefore attempting to make Paul of Tarsus into a liar when they claim that some of his words did not mean what they say, and rather, they claim that those words have some special spiritual meaning, which is not found in the common Greek of the time, anywhere. If the people of those assemblies did not understand the plain meaning of Paul's words, in their common Greek vernacular, then Paul was speaking into the air. That's how they have Paul of Tarsus, exactly contrary to Paul's purpose, intent, and profession. In truth, Paul is true. He meant exactly what he wrote. And the universalist denominational churches, they are the liars. So many, if, for example, sorts of speech, types of languages, there are in a society, and not one without a voice. This use of the verb tukoi to mean, for example, is found here and in 1 Corinthians 15.37. It is literally, perchance or perhaps, the lexicons Joseph Thayer and Liddell and Scott discuss these specific instances where they explain the adverbial use of this verb and its use in the manner in which we have translated it here. For example... While we translated the word aphonos, Strong's number 880, phonus, the word from which we get the English word phone, is a sound in Greek. 
our phonuses without sound. We translated it here literally, meaning without a voice. The King James Version did well to render it here as without signification. However, our hesitation to follow it is only because Paul's intention may well have been to say that those of that of those worldly languages that he's talking about, because he's talking not about unknown tongues, but about worldly tongues, they all have someone who understands and speaks with them. In any event, Paul is speaking about worldly languages, as he attests here in verse 10. Tongues that are already established and commonly used by at least some of the people in the Greco-Roman world. That world described in the list of nations of Judeans at the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Paul's statements here clearly discredit the insane babbling and childish so-called interpretation conducted among certain of the modern denominational sects, which for some strange reason seems to occur among members of those sects only on Sunday mornings. In other words, if there were truth to the modern phenomenon of speaking in tongues, which we see in the so-called Pentecostal churches, then it would be attested to continually in all areas of daily life and not just in a church. In other words, you could be in, a world, in the workplace or in a Walmart or in a McDonald's or some restaurant and somebody would suddenly start speaking in tongues. And some other person on the other side of the room might say, oh, I know what he said. I speak that language. It only happens in church. It's a sham. Now, if from this point it ever does become a fad, we will know that Satan listens to these podcasts. But I won't think that highly of, of, of myself. Verse 11. Then it perhaps, I do not know the meaning of the speech. I will be foreign to he who is speaking, and he who is speaking foreign in respect to me. Speaking in tongues is useless unless those tongues represent a language which is commonly understood by at least someone from among those who are listening. The word for foreign here is the Greek word for the Greek word barbaros which is barbarian. It literally means foreign in Greek. Verse 12, Even so, you also, since you are a zealous admirer of spirits, for the building of the assembly, you must seek in order that you have the advantage. The word, the word order for this verse is the original. The King James switches it around. They don't change the meaning. It's okay. The King James Version has excel rather than advantage. There's a couple of manuscripts, the Codex Alexandrinus, <coughs> excuse me, and the Codex Frerianus, 
from the 5th century. They have the last clause of this verse to read, you must seek in order that you would interpret prophecy, which is um, a confusion over two long words that have the same ending and the same first letter, P. But they're really not that similar. Scribal error. Seeking the building of the assembly. We seek to employ whatever gifts we have in the edification of the body of Christ. And as we asserted at the beginning of this presentation in our introduction, the advantage is in storing up treasure in heaven by showing our love for our brethren and acting on it. As to the phrase, admirer of spirits, all of the ancient Greek manuscripts had the word pneumaton, the genitive plural of pneuma, or spirit, Strong's 4151. And therefore, the word is rendered properly and literally to mean of spirits, since you are an admirer of spirits. Some 9th and 10th century manuscripts, which the King James Version seems to have followed here, have the word pneumonicon instead, the first seven or eight letters are the same. Pneumonicon is the genitive plural of pneumonicus, which means spiritual. To that, the King James Version added the word gifts in order for it to make sense. In all of the oldest copies, Paul is recorded to have said spirits instead. Verse 13, on which account he who is speaking in a language must pray in order that he may explain. For if perhaps I pray in a language, my spirit prays, but my perception is barren. What is it then? I will pray in spirit, but I will also pray with the mind. I will sing with the spirit, but I will also sing with the mind. The miraculous gift of tongues, as Paul indicates in verse 14 here, was what was bestowed by God without the speaker necessarily understanding the language himself. The hearer understood the language. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said, that if he spoke in a tongue in that manner, his perception is barren. Paul had written something in Romans that seems to be related to this statement, where he said, and in like manner, the Spirit assists us with our weaknesses. For that which we should pray for, regarding what there is need of, we do not know. But the Spirit itself intercedes with inexpressible utterances. Romans 8.26. However, the phrase inexpressible utterances only implies that the Spirit can communicate with God in a manner other than the words of a language and not with a strange language. So I'm mentioning Romans 8.26 here not because the two verses should be cross-referenced, but because they should not be cross-referenced. 
If we could speak in tongues, then we should pray that we ourselves understand the things which we say. Praying in the Spirit is silent prayer. And there is an example of that found in Scripture, in the woman, Hannah, the mother of Samson, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm sorry, the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Christians should pray with their minds and not with thoughts or words that they cannot understand. If we pray in a foreign tongue, it is useless to us if we do not understand what we think or say. Paul seems to be throughout this chapter exploding a lot of the superstitions concerning speaking in tongues, which must have been extant. In first century Corinth, as well as in modern evangelicals, Pentecostals. In Romans, Paul was talking about a different aspect of communication between God and man, which man may not even be conscious of. But here, Paul is discussing the prayer or praise of God that a man offers consciously, that man should pray and praise God perceptibly with understanding of mind and not with useless babble. Because a foreign tongue, if we don't understand it, isn't much better than useless babble. Unless, of course, it's an interpreter. Since it perhaps, verse 16, you would speak well with the Spirit, or bless, that word bless literally means to speak well of. He who is sitting in the place of the uninstructed, how shall he proclaim truth? That's a literal translation of the word amen. Upon your giving of thanks, seeing that what you say, he does not know. Meaning if you spoke in a tongue, the people that were uninstructed, they wouldn't know what you were saying. For you indeed give thanks rightly, but the other is not built up. The reference to the place of the uninstructed seems to be a reference to a place within the meeting place of the Christian assembly designated for those who are new to the community. The word for place is explicit in the Greek, and the phrase rendered in the Christian New Testament as sitting in, in verse 16, is literally a word which means filling, he who is filling the place of the uninstructed, which therefore must refer to, the, to a specific area within the general meeting place. Now, we may conjecture, and I will, that this custom is a holdover from the synagogues of the Judeans, which many of these Greek Corinthians had attended before having met with Paul and becoming Christians, for which we may see Acts chapter 18 from verse 4. Speaking in tongues, Paul is saying here, is useless 
if the language is not understood by those who are present, since the words are meaningless to them and there is no edification in them, speaking in a language, those sitting in the seat of the uninstructed wouldn't have any edification at all. Other statements here by Paul would indicate that if the people who were uninstructed understood that language, then it would be a reason for it. Paul says, I give thanks to Yahweh, speaking in more languages than all of you. But in the assembly, I wish to speak five words with my mind in order that I may instruct others also than a myriad of words in a language. Now the codices, Sinaiticus Vaticanus and Vaticanus Grecus, three very important codices, two from the fourth century and one from the fifth, and usually the ones that I would prefer to follow. They have verse 18 to read that I give thanks to Yahweh that I speak in more languages than all of you. Which would seem to imply that Paul had vaunted himself above the assembly contrary to his own admonitions in chapter 13 of this epistle. So here the text of the Christianity New Testament follows the 3rd century papyrus P46 and also the majority text which has a very a different word which would be translated the same way. The Codex Alexandrinus is wanting the verb entirely but that would still not change the meaning implied in the text of the Christian New Testament. Paul is not boasting. He's not vaunting himself. Rather, he is making a plain statement of fact that he himself can speak in more languages than any of the members of the Christian assembly at Corinth. Yet, in spite of this, he speaks with his mind and chooses to do so rather than in the spirit and with the gifts of tongues. He speaks with his mind so that those listening can understand his words. He would rather speak five words that his listeners can understand than speak a multitude of words in a strange language that his listeners cannot understand simply because he would like to show off. So Christian edification is found in clear, understandable language and not in any vain babbling for the sake of an entertaining performance. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be as children in your minds. Rather, in regards to wickedness, be infants, but in your minds, be full-grown. In verse 19, the word for mind is news. Here in verse 20, on both occasions, the word for mind is frame. 
The two words are synonyms, but noose more commonly represents the unseen mind, while frame describes the actual muscles of the chest or the heart, which was perceived by the Greeks to be the seat of the mind, the seat of consciousness. Being full-grown in mind, Paul encourages men to communicate their wisdom, their encouragement, or whatever Christian gifts they may have with a clear language and in a way that all in the assembly may understand and have edification from. Being infants in regards to wickedness means that one should not seek to experience unseemly things, but keep oneself free of them as an infant is perceived to be before the sodomizers get a hold of it. Verse 21. In the law it is written that in other languages and with other lips will I speak to this people and not even in that manner will they heed me, says Yahweh. Here Paul seems to be paraphrasing Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. This is one of the minority of citations of the Old Testament from the letters of Paul, which seems to agree more closely with the Masoretic text than with the Septuagint. However, neither does it agree completely with the Masoretic text. The New English translation of the Bible has Isaiah 28.11 to say, For with mocking lips and a foreign tongue will he speak to these, to this, to these people. That version seems to be a better representation of the Hebrew than the one found in the King James Version. However, the Hebrew may even be read, for because of a mocking lip, then with another tongue will he speak to this people. There's several possibilities in the Hebrew there. This last reading seems to be closely reflected by Brenton's translation of the Greek Septuagint, which is a fair interpretation of the Greek, and which says, by reason of the contemptuous words of the lips, by means of another language, for they shall speak to this people. The Septuagint Greek, the Septuagint Greek may be interpreted to say, through contempt of the lips and through another tongue, that they shall speak to this people. And yes, the Septuagint has, they shall speak, rather than I will speak. Yet here in the Greek of his epistle, Paul has very clearly written, in other languages and with other lips will I speak to this people. And the rest of the verse where it says, and not even in that manner will they heed me, say is, says Yahweh, which is paraphrased from Isaiah 28.12. Therefore, it is evident that either Paul was reading from a version of Isaiah 28.11 that was slightly different from the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, or that Paul interpreted the Hebrew for himself somewhat differently than either the Septuagint or the modern English translators have done. But this is one of those cases in Scripture where Paul's version 
is quite different from the Septuagint version and closer to the Masoretic text. Verse 22. So then, the languages are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But the interpretation of prophecy is not to the unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now this statement seems to conflict with the one which follows in verse 23, where Paul describes unbelievers hearing tongues who may imagine Christians to be mad, while unbelievers are converted to believe by interpreters of prophecy. Yet that is precisely what Paul is saying, and there is no real conflict at all. The word popularly translated as unbeliever refers to more than merely someone who is not persuaded, especially by men. The Greek word apistos, Strong's number 571, literally means without faith. Of course, the message of the gospel is only for the people of the faith of Abraham. The people of the faith of Abraham are the people who Abraham believed in when he was told that his seed, his offspring, would become many nations. If you're not one of those nations, you are without faith because you are outside of the faith. Those without the faith, being outside of the faith, would have to be confronted by Christians both speaking in tongues and prophesying in order for Paul's words to be tested. Those who are potentially of the faith, who are one of the seed of Abraham, will see the truth of the interpreters of prophecy and be converted into being believers. Those who cannot be of the faith which are those who are not truly of the children of Israel, may deny the prophets, but will continue to have the testimony of the tongues as a sign in spite of their unbelief. Even the Jews had to admit that Christ was able to do many wondrous things. Nevertheless, they remained steadfast in their disbelief. We read this in Luke chapter 13 of Christ, and it says, and when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Verse 21, if then the entire assembly would gather in the same place, and all should speak languages, then let enter the uninstructed or unbelievers Will they not say that you are mad? And yes, this was the case in Acts chapter 2, where after so many Judeans who were from the surrounding nations heard the apostles speaking in their native tongues, and we read, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. And after Peter had addressed the crowd, Many understood and were converted to Christ, while others continued to disbelieve. But the sign of the apostles, having spoken in tongues, remained. So the tongues are for the unbelievers. 
And Paul says in verse 24, but if perhaps all might interpret prophecy and some unbeliever or uninstructed may enter, he is brought convincing proof by all. He is examined by all. The secrets of his heart become evident. And thus, falling upon his face, he will worship Yahweh, announcing that truly Yahweh is among you. Once again, we must mention that here Paul uses a sensitive verb, prophetuo, which Liddell and Scott did not recognize, perhaps because the term was not used explicitly in that manner in classical Greek. But that has more to do not with the use of the verb, but with the Greek religious paradigm. It is evident from classical Greek writings about the pagan oracles, the oracle to Apollo at Delphi being the most famous, that the Pythonus was attributed with the ability of revealing the secrets of men. However, the Pythonus was only seen as a conduit for the pagan deity. The Pythonus was not the prophet. And therefore, her words required an interpreter. The interpreter was the prophet. The interpreter, the Greeks considered to be a prophet, one who interpreted the words of a god, which the Pythonus was merely only repeating and passing on. The Greeks believed the words of the Pythonists, which they received through the priests or priestesses, the, the words of the God, I should say, which they received through the priests or priestesses of the oracles. In his Greek-English lexicon, Joseph Thayer does explicitly describe this use of the words for prophecy as they can refer to one who has the ability to reveal the secrets of men. And Paul says, what is it, brethren? Whenever you would gather, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a language, has an explanation, meaning an interpretation of the language. All things must be engaged for building or for edification. All things offered within the Christian assembly should be offered for the edification of the assembly and not for the vaunting of oneself, for self-promotion. Having an honest interpretation of Scripture or speaking in tongues for the benefit of people present in the assembly who understand them, one is edifying the assembly. However, purporting to have special wisdom or a special ability to speak things that no one else can understand. One is indeed vaunting oneself. I knew a clown once that, um, that, that told me that he knew the Song of Moses from the Revelation, but I wasn't able to know it like he knew that. What a turkey. Whether anyone speaks in a language, two or three at the most, and in turn, then one must give an explanation. 
Paul seems to be making examples in order to encourage Christians to show deference for one another. Of course, according to Paul's other admonishments here, one should know that there are men present who would understand that language before endeavoring to speak. This is what Paul is about to say in verse 28. And if perhaps there is not an interpreter, he must be silent among the assembly, and he must speak to himself and to Yahweh. If one speaks in a tongue that no one else can understand, there is no point in trying to share it. This is another indication that Paul is speaking concerning worldly languages, as he indicates here in verse 10, and not in some unworldly babble. And two or three interpreters of prophecy speak, then the others must discern. But if perhaps to another sitting by they are revealed, the first must be silent. Likewise, Christians should show deference for one another. Here it may also be evident that each member of the Christian assembly should always have an opportunity to speak when he feels that he has something to offer. Verse 30 seems to indicate the more traditional understanding of the word for prophecy as an expounder of the word of God in Scripture. It is likely that wherever Paul used the terms, he had all of its definitions in mind. Indeed, verse 31, indeed you are all able one by one to interpret prophecy in order that all understand and all should be encouraged and the spirits of the prophets are obedient to interpreters of prophecy indeed Yahweh is not of instability but of peace <coughs> excuse me as the apostle John had recorded in the revelation of Yahshua Christ in chapter 22. These words are trustworthy and true. This is the closing of the revelation, or close to it. These words are trustworthy and true. And Yahweh, God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his messenger to show his servants the things which are necessary to happen shortly. Paul encouraged Christians to learn through the holy writings, as he said in Romans chapter 15, from verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Therefore, through the study of Scripture and through prayer, one should be able to interpret prophecy. From Numbers chapter 11. Verse 24, and Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle. And Yahweh came down in the cloud and spoke unto him and took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But there remained two of the men in the camp, 
The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out under the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Enviest thou for my sake? In other words, Joshua was envying the prophets for the sake of Moses. Would God, I wish to God, that all of Yahweh's people were prophets, and that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. So even Moses was not threatened by the prospect that others of the children of Israel in his day were given the gift of prophecy. So we should never be envious of our brethren in the assembly of Christ and give them space to speak the things of their spirit. However, Yahweh, not being of instability, ostensibly, Christians have an obligation to search the scriptures as well to ensure that their interpreters of prophecy are indeed operating in accordance with the spirits of the prophets. While there were many prophets among the people in the Old Testament, there were false prophets as well. And Christians have that same warning from the apostles. Therefore, the Apostle John says in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And Paul continues with verse 33, probably where 34 should really start. As in all of the assemblies of the saints, the women in the assemblies must keep silent. Indeed, they are not to be entrusted to speak in them. Rather, they are to be obedient, just as the law says. The Codex Claral Montanus has the text of verses 34 and 35 to follow what we know as verse 40, rather than having them here. There's not much of a difference, but it's slight. Women, women were not permitted to lord over men. As the commandment in Genesis 3.16 has always been interpreted. Under the woman, Yahweh said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Therefore women could not be teachers of men in the assembly of God. Neither were women permitted to fulfill any of the functions of the priesthood. However, women were certainly allowed to fulfill other functions. For instance, things such as women singers were indeed allowed 
And that is evident in 2 Samuel chapter 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 35, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ezra chapter 2, verse 65, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 67. They all mention women singers. So women were indeed permitted to glorify God in public, in the assembly. Furthermore, we find examples in Scripture, such as Anna, the prophetess, who prophesied openly of the Christ child while he was being presented in the temple of Yahweh. This is recorded in Luke chapter 2. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, who departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, at the time that Christ was being presented, gave thanks likewise unto Yahweh, and spoke of him to all of them who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Similar to Anna were the seven daughters of Philip, the evangelist, all of whom were virgins and who had the gift of prophecy, who were described in Acts chapter 21. Therefore, Paul's admonition to women, for women to be silent, must be taken in this context, that while women were barred from teaching or from ruling over men, they were nevertheless allowed to use their voices in other ways for the glory of God. Verse 35. But if they wish to learn anything in the home, they must inquire of their own hus- husbands. Indeed, it is a disgrace for women to speak in the assembly. So they don't ask any questions in the assembly, and they don't rule over or teach men. There are not many examples in the Old Testament of the behavior expected of women while they are in attendance within the assembly of God, in either the temple or in the synagogue. In fact, not even many identity Christians realize that there were assembly halls throughout the lands of Israel and Judah where long before Christ, people gathered to hear the law and other things from the scriptures. But there were. One record of their existence is in Psalm 74. There are exceptions found in scripture which describe some of the occasions where women stepped up to do something which the men had failed to do, such as the story in Deborah in in the book of Judges, the prophetess Deborah. However, those are indeed exceptions, and they are not the general rule. And when that happens, we must understand that it is to the reproach of men who are not taking charge of their, 
of, of the obligations which they have. In classical Greek culture, which certainly was derived from and related to the culture of the Hebrews, we see that in the 5th century BC, women were depicted as being forbidden from speaking in public, and they were not even permitted to look at men who were not close relations to them. I'm going to paraphrase a paper found at Christogenia entitled, Paul was not a misogynist, meaning a woman hater, which he's often blamed for being. Only men participated in the democracy of Athens. Women were excluded from politics. They did not speak publicly. And as Euripides' character Ahithra in his play Suppliant Women says in lines 40 to 41, it is proper for women, if they are wise, to do everything through their men because women were not permitted to speak in public. So Paul's admonition to women not to speak in the assembly, but to learn and inquire through their husbands, which we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, was surely not a novel contrivance. It was already a part of Hellenistic culture. It was also a part of the older Hebrew culture. In fact, Athenian life in the 5th century was even stricter. In another play by Euripides, entitled Hecuba, at lines 974 and 975, the title character states that custom ordains that women shall not look directly at men. They kept their eyes to the ground. The word translated custom in the Loeb Library edition of Euripides, which we just quoted, is nomos. And nomos is a word which is translated as law everywhere in the New Testament. In ancient Greece, we see an extreme, which is far beyond the restraint in which the apostles of Christ encouraged Christian women to hold themselves. Like Paul, the Apostle Peter, in chapter 3 of his first epistle, also admonished Christian women to adorn themselves in a meek and quiet spirit, keeping themselves in subjection to their husbands. The ancient Greeks may seem like terrible tyrants to the women of today, but in Greek society, faithful women understood that their place was to stand behind their husbands and maintain their homes. What many modern people, and this is why modesty and solicitude for women is indeed Christian and the only way for society to function normally. What many modern people, both men and women, do not seem to understand is the dynamic of sexual desire in the workplace as well as in the public arena. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul discouraged the separation of man and wife for any significant time, as he himself says, because of fornication. Not all, but probably most men, and any man at any given time. Most men are generally weak when it comes to sex and easily persuaded by a pretty face or by a beautiful feminine body. The sexual urge is powerful, and it is easy to sway a man with it. History is proof where many great men have fallen because of an unseemly lust for women. Once a woman is introduced into the workplace, sexual desire, lust, is introduced in the workplace right along with her. Once women are introduced into the political arena, sexual desire, lust, is introduced right along with her. Once women are introduced into the political arena, men begin to make decisions which are facilitated by the imaginations of their lustful hearts, and a nation embarks down the path to hell. There is no way around that. And the liberated society is a doomed society. The enemies of Christ know that very well, for which reason the liberation of women from their fathers and husbands was a key component of the Communist Manifesto, as well as the Protocols of Zion. And it has been a key element in the Jewish agenda for the subversion of Christendom for well over 200 years. In the days before Yahweh pronounced his judgment upon the city, Ancient Jerusalem was also awash in feminism. Therefore, we read in Isaiah chapter 3 from verse 8, For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against Yahweh to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them. And they declare their sin as Sodom, and they hide it not. Today it's packaged under the label LGBT. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, which they which lead thee cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. Yahweh stands up to plead, and stands to judge the people. Yahweh will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people, and the princes thereof. For ye have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. 
What mean ye that beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor, saith Yahweh, God of hosts? Moreover, Yahweh saith, and here's the connection of women ruling over the children of Israel to feminism. Because, verse 16, moreover, Yahweh saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore, Yahweh will smite thee with the scab, the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will discover their secret parts. Yahweh will indeed punish us all for the removal of women from his natural order, because it has been a key element in the creation of a decadent society. Women should be silent, speak at home, be silent in the public arena, speak at home, and learn to their husbands. And they may, of course, glorify God in the assembly of the body of Christ, without a doubt, prophesying, singing, any other scriptural examples. Verse 36, Truly has the word of Yahweh come out from you, or to you only has it arrived. And the attitude which Paul reflects here must be in response to something that the Corinthians had said concerning these things. As Paul had explained at the beginning of chapter 7 of this epistle, he is still addressing things that the Corinthians had written to him in an earlier letter. Verse 37. If anyone supposes to be an interpreter of prophecy or of the Spirit, he must acknowledge the things which I write to you are commandments of the prince or of the Lord. The Codex Alexandrinus ends verse 37 with the phrase commandments of God. The Codex Claromontanus wants the word for commandments. The things which Paul has written are indeed commandments of the prince, or commandments of the Lord. Because the Old Testament God, Yahweh, and the New Testament, Lord Yahshua Christ, are indeed one and the same. There's only one God. Here, according to Paul himself, anyone who has a legitimate claim to being those things which Paul has mentioned here, either a prophet or a man of the Spirit of God, must recognize and acknowledge the preeminence of the law of God. If one does not acknowledge the preeminence of the law of God, then one is a false prophet and an interloper. Paul continues in response to things the Corinthians had written him. But if anyone would be ignorant, let him be ignorant. And so, my brethren, you be zealous to interpret prophecy, and you must not be prevented to speak in languages. Paul is only discouraging the speaking in tongues when there is no one to benefit by it, when there are no hearers of those languages present. He's not discouraging the speaking in tongues when it has 
the practical purpose of the edification of the listeners. So long as speaking in tongues has a purpose. All things must be done with dignity and in accordance with order, Christian order. With this, we conclude our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, Life and Later. The purpose of the program will will be to begin what we hope shall be a series of discussions on the consequences of the life of Martin Luther and the build-up to what is one of the greatest, one of the most terrible crimes in history, the Thirty Years' War, which decimated medieval Germany. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.